Hello, you're listening to Character Speaks, supported by ProSign Design, a podcast designed to spotlight passionate character educators who are walking the talk. Today, we're visiting with Houston Kraft, co-founder of Character Strong. Welcome to the show, Houston. Thanks, Barbara. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started. <laughs> yeah, oh, the, the famous intro question, who are you? Why are we talking to you? Well, I already uh, know you're on a kindness crusade. <laughs> I am on a kindness crusade, and that's probably the main thing you should know about me. Um, but what else? I, uh, I've been working and speaking in schools for the past eight years. I've had a chance to work with uh, 600 campuses or conferences at this point internationally. I just had a couple of my first international gigs. I was in Uganda last a uh, couple weeks ago, and I was in Mexico last week working with educators and with students. So uh, kindness and character strong has gone global. Um, I, uh, my background's in English and theater and education and leadership. And um, for the past eight years, my goal has been to help schools and, and students and leaders and teachers have more meaningful conversations around compassion um, with, I guess, the main lens being uh, why is kindness worthwhile, important, and more recently, the better question I've been trying to ask is, why aren't we so good at it? What gets in the way of, of the consistent practice of character or kindness in our life? Um, uh, in 2016, I came together with my friend and hero, John Norlin, and we created Character Strong. John was a, an educator for 10 years in a classroom teaching full-time leadership. Uh, his district thought what he was doing on that campus was so cool and culture-shifting that they I made him the program administrator for the whole child, the Sumner School District. Um, and together, we've uh, we've created some curriculums to help schools teach this stuff more effectively. So that's where I'm at, um, working on my kindness crusade, one story and practical tool at a time. I'm glad you mentioned the word story. One of the things that drew me to you and your work last October when we met is the story that you told about Helga. Would you consider telling that to our listeners today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Helga story has really been a, um, I don't know, a guiding light, a linchpin in, in just about any keynote or, or conference that I work with because it's such a simple, practical example of why this work's important. The, uh, the short version of the story is, is six years ago, I was on an airplane flying to speak at a middle school. And uh, I don't know what your uh, or the listeners' feelings on airplanes are, but sometimes, especially when you're in the middle seat and you're tired and you have work to do, all you want to do is take a nap. And uh, sometimes we don't always want to engage with the people next to us. Uh, but this woman on this particular day was um, was determined to have a conversation with me. And at some point along the way, uh, among pleasantries, she asked what I did for work, and I told her I worked in schools, and she got all excited because she, she had worked in schools before, and she asked what I did. I told her I was on a kindness crusade, and uh, she got pretty serious and, and shared with me, uh, well, really, the, the last time she was on an airplane previous to our meeting was three years before, and uh, she said the only reason she was on an airplane was because she'd woken up early in the morning to a phone call from her father's doctor. Um, mm -hmm. The woman's name, um, who I was sitting next to, is Helga. And Helga at the time was living in Seattle, her dad in Arizona. And she gets this phone call um, 
that they're taking her dad to the hospital. And as soon as she can get down to Arizona, she should because he wasn't doing very well. So needless to say, she doesn't even pack a bag. She speeds to the airport, buys a plane ticket for five hours later that night and uh, finally gets on the airplane after what can only be the most stressful day ever. Um, and right before the plane takes off, she gets news that her dad had passed away. Mm-mm. And uh, as Helga describes it, she says she, she kind of sat in silence for three hours, you know, in shock. Um, and uh, next to strangers, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do, didn't know how to process it. Finally lands in Arizona, gets off, walks to the nearest wall, and just, you know, for lack of a better word, crumbles, uh, falls to the ground, and is crying in the airport. Um, and in her own words, she says she sat there for two hours uh, as 3,000 people walked by and, and not a single person stopped. Um, and the words that she said to me that have always stuck with me that day, she goes, you know, Houston, I I sat there for two hours while all these people walked by and and it occurred to me that kindness isn't normal, that it's not normal in our world to be kind. And, uh, and I'd already been passionate about kindness, but, uh, her saying that was a real, um, you know, purpose deepener for lack of a better term, uh, as a reminder of like, know what what are we missing here where's the gap because we all know kindness is worthwhile we all know kindness is good we all know how we'd want to be treated in those moments so what's you know what's the gap between what we believe to be important and how we actually act in this world um and so for the past six years i've really been on a mission to a have those conversations of, of what gets in our way and b more importantly to me create some really practical tools so that we can teach this stuff Um, I think that the only way we change what's normal in culture is by educating people really specifically on what we want to see in the world. So if we explicitly want more kindness, we better explicitly teach more kindness. Yeah. Hey, what do you think gets in our way? Yeah. So that's a a question I've been, you know, trying to be self-reflective on. And, um, uh, I think it comes down to, to three, four potentially even five things, but I'll give you my top three and then we can talk about the other two a little bit. Okay. Um, my, top, my top three are, are the first one is incompetence. Um, incompetence meaning if I don't know how to do a thing, then I'm unlikely to do that thing very often. Right? We avoid the things that we're not comfortable with. Um, the example I always like to give is just going to the gym. And if there's a machine in the gym, of which there are many that I don't know what to do with, <laughs> then I don't use those machines, right? I go and I do what I know. I know how to do pull-ups. I know how to do push-ups. I can kind of do curls. Uh, but there's some machines that are they're so mysterious to me that I will forever avoid them out of, you know, whatever that reasoning is. I, I haven't been trained on it. And, and really, if, if I don't know how to do something, then A, even if I sit down to try to do it, I'm likely not going to get better at it because I don't have the right technique. Or B, I'm going to hurt myself. Or C, I'm going to hurt someone else in the process. And yeah, I think the same thing's true about kindness or compassion. If I don't know how to do something, then um, then I kind of avoid it. And, and for me, I think about Helga personally. If I were to see someone crying in the airport, um, I would say that a competence that I'm still not very skilled at is empathy. I have a hard time sitting with people's challenging emotions. Um, I have a hard time feeling with people, especially when it's feelings of hurt or pain. Um, and so from a competence level, if I'm not very competent at empathy or, or, or feeling alongside someone, then my likelihood of practicing kindness in that moment decreases 
not because I don't want to, it's just because I don't know how to. Okay, so this goes to, I'm, I'm jumping in your top three here, but this goes to Michelle Borba talking about empathy and something that stuck with me that she said several years ago, said dormant empathy does no good. <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> we think about that for a while and we want to tell kids to be kind and we can tell them all day long to be kind, but if we haven't activated and elevated their empathy, talk about the mm. competence Right. Yep. We just assume we're going to assume that they know what to do or how to do that or even why. Why? Why should they be kind? Yep. Yeah. Dormant empathy. I like that. Yeah. It does it no good. It led me to, to kind of think that so empathy gives kindness its why. Uh, yeah, it definitely gives it its why. And sometimes it gives it its legs. You know, empathy is a empathy is a pathway to kindness. If you can yes. walk down empathy, you can you know, your your kindness is deepened or even activated in the first place. Yeah. If I don't if I don't feel with you, I have a hard time, you know, A, figuring out what you're experiencing. B, maybe even the more challenging and bigger question is like, do I know what you actually need? Because if I don't know what you actually need, sometimes kindness becomes a platitude. Well, and you or, also have to care. Yeah. Care what you need, right? So probably there's a compassion piece in there somewhere too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, empathy is, is the step before compassion, right? Mm -hmm. Compassion in Latin means to suffer with and, uh, and have a, the additional part of empathy. You know, empathy is to suffer alongside someone. Compassion means to suffer with someone and yeah. actively want to alleviate that suffering. Um, yeah. Which the kindness piece can do. The kindness, yeah, the kindness piece is the action part of that, right? So empathy mm -hmm. plus yeah. kindness is compassion. Head, heart, and hands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what are your numbers two and three? <laughs> yeah, I know we could have a whole conversation around <laughs> just incompetence for sure, because I think that's uh, a key part of education, right? Is is providing kids competencies, whether that's social emotional skills, whether that's character skills. But we have to teach. You know, we, we get to teach competencies. That's part of educating the whole child. Well, and I want to I want to clarify too. When we say incompetent, I think sometimes we think of that as like with a negative slant, like oh, that's so incompetent. But that's not really what you're saying because it could also be lack of lack of experience. We just haven't been taught that yet. Yeah, totally. I, I think uh, yeah, maybe we've we've um, layered that word incompetent with um, with some negative connotations. But um, I think it's a uh, you know if we reframe it to say. If I'm uncompetent at something, it's an opportunity to learn something new. Um, I think that's better than than the criticism of, oh, you're just incompetent at this. It's like, for me, I'm like, yeah, there's lots of things I'm incompetent at. And I would like to become competent in those things because I have a desire to help people. And if we can if we can help A, I, I think um, it's a good point that we have to pair those conversations together. You know, Angela Duckworth says the most resilient people, and I think kindness is an exercise in resilience often, the most resilient people um, in all of her research are usually motivated by a deep single purpose why. And uh, in education right now, we I think we need to, not only do we need to teach competencies, but we need to teach purpose. Um, because most kids, the reason they show up to school is to get good grades or to go to a college. And Angela Duckworth would say, that's a good goal, but it's not a good purpose. Because purpose is something that needs to be that needs to motivate you through adversity or challenging times. And just going to school because I have to or to get good grades is that's not going to motivate you to the most challenging times. 
So in school, we have to help kids wrestle with purpose. Why do I go to school? Why am I in this community of people? Why should I show up and be kind to the people next to me? And if we can help them wrestle with purpose, then that purpose will motivate their desire to become competent in something like compassion. And it's also right that we have to do it from the inside out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If it's outside in, you're in trouble because... <laughs> well, I guess grades are yeah. outside in, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Grades are such an extrinsic motivator and you know, all the research shows that we're going to overcome adversity when we have intrinsic motivation and we're really clear on why we're doing what we're doing. And getting an A is not, <laughs> that's not the deep purpose. Nice. Okay, numbers two and three. Yeah. Uh, so th- number two actually relates to um, Michelle Borba and perhaps dormant empathy. Uh, number two, we have incompetence is number one. Number two is insecurity, uh, which is just to say when we're afraid of things, we're also going to avoid doing those things. Um, and those fears can look like a lot of different things, you know, and a lot of the questions I've had a chance to ask students all over the the country and the world at this point, um, it usually comes down to one of a couple of things. Number one is um, I'm scared that I'm not perfect. And I think our culture puts a lot of focus on looking and acting and achieving to these really crazy high standards. And kids feel like if they don't measure up, then they're not worthy of love. Um, so if, if, if I feel like I'm what I'm about to do um, doesn't meet that standard of perfection, sometimes I'll avoid doing it simply to protect my own ego. <laughs> um, number two is that fear of being judged, that fear of not being accepted by people. Uh, so people pleasing causes us to, you know, act out of alignment sometimes, or sometimes it causes us to not act in a very proactive way because we're trying to save face or trying to act cool around a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, another fear is that fear of failure and man, kindness can be a recipe for failure. Oftentimes, you know, you try to help people and it's not always going to work or they're going to laugh at you. You're going to get rejected. And so in, in our current culture, failure is seen as such a, um, you know, I think we're trying to reshape that paradigm a little bit, but still we're terrified of failure. And so, uh, it's easy to not do something. You know, it's better to risk not doing it as opposed to risk failing at all. Um, And then the last one is just shame. I'm ashamed of who I am or I don't think that I'm good enough or capable enough or, and all of those insecurities, they, they add up to, uh, you know, they're all recipes to, to prevent kindness in our life. Um, and maybe the simplest way to put it is Michelle Borba talks about anxiety being the number one, uh, contributor to the quote unquote empathy gap, right? The more anxious we are, the more, um, the more wrapped up we are in our own worries, that anxiety, uh, which means we have a harder time thinking of other people's worries, which is the exercise of empathy. So empathy has dropped 29% in college-age students since 2012. You know, the average student today has as much anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. So as anxiety increases, empathy decreases. As insecurity increases, empathy decreases, which means kindness decreases. So we have incompetency, we have insecurity, And the third one, I think, is uh, inconvenience, which for lack of a better way to put it, um, sometimes we just don't feel like it, right? Like this stuff is hard. Kindness is hard. Engaging with people in meaningful ways is hard. Getting messy with people's feelings and their insecurities and and what they and asking that question of what you need is, is hard. And, you know, there's a thousand feelings that we experience on any given day that might um, in smaller, big ways 
prevent us from acting in kindness. So if I feel angry, I will. It's hard to be kind towards you. If I feel resentful, it's hard to be kind to you. If I feel busy or overworked, it's hard to practice kindness to you. If it means me going out of my way, if I feel anxious, if I feel stressed, if I feel exhausted, you know, any of the things that you and I might feel because of what's going on in our personal relationships or what's going on in everything that we have to do with work or the number of emails we have or we're in a rush from this meeting to the next meeting. Um, If I don't feel like doing a thing, then sometimes, oftentimes with most people, our feelings drive our actions, which is why Andrew Fuller out of Australia would say the number one indicator of not success necessarily, but fulfillment in life is emotional regulation. Can you get your... uh, your head in charge of your heart enough to act in alignment with what you believe in, even when you don't feel like it. And that's really our goal in education too, right? Is to get kids to self-regulate. Yeah. Well, uh, that is a, I would say that's an overarching goal. I don't know if, I think schools lose track of that one. Right. But it's pretty important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the social and emotional learning piece, um, you know, if if you don't carve out time for emotional literacy, we can't just assume kids know what to do with those feelings, how to manage them, how to process them, how to use them as propellant instead of retardant, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My my big argument is sometimes schools think of social-emotional learning or or character education is another thing on their plates. And my argument is it is the plate. If kids don't know how to emotionally regulate, connect with each other, build empathy, practice kindness, then you know we're piling all this knowledge on top of broken plates and expecting it to work. But you know, it's the, we got to build the foundation first. Okay, so I want to take you into mindset and mindfulness just a little bit because you talked about um, anxiety, and I think mindfulness can be an antidote. I think that that Mm. growth mindset can certainly tackle some of that need for perfection and fear of failure. Can you address how how you use those either in your personal or professional life or both? Yeah, I mean, the the mindfulness exercises that um, through our curriculum and that we want to equip kids with is um, is the pathway, one pathway towards emotional regulation, right? First of all, on a most basic level, I think that words are so powerful because words frame our thinking. So if I if I am introduced to a concept or a word that um, that clearly articulates something that maybe I knew was a thing, but I didn't know how to express it yet, to me that's a huge deal. So for example. On my wrist right now, I'm wearing a word. The word is mudita. Mudita is a Sanskrit word, and it means vicarious joy, nice. which is just just to say that um, I find happiness in other people's happiness. What a great word, right? But it's a bef- great word. Before I knew that word, um, I think I had less access to that idea. But because I understand this word, it, it helps frame my thinking in a new way, right? It, it unlocks a new understanding. And when I have a new understanding, potentially it changes the way that I act in the world. Um, I think the same thing's true about conversations of fixed versus growth mindset. I think we all intrinsically know that there's different ways of thinking, even if we don't consciously sort of articulate it in our heads. We know that there's better or worse ways to a- approach uh, problems or, or things that come up in our life. Um, having the conversation of growth versus fixed mindset gives language 
to concepts that helps kids understand that um, I am always capable of learning if if I take the approach of a growth mindset learner. Um, so those conversations are are critical from an anxiety standpoint. Um, you know, the freedom that growth mindset gives kids is huge. It means that even if I struggled with this or I failed at this particular concept or this test, um, anxiety is crippling and says, I can't do it again. I'm a failure. I'll never get it right. Growth mindset gives us the freedom to escape anxiety by saying, no, I, maybe I need to ask more questions. Maybe I was studying things that weren't serving me. Maybe I need to f- reframe my priorities to say that this concept is, is challenging for me, which just means I need to work harder at it and give myself more time and permission to give myself more time and ask more questions. Um, I think the growth mindset concept uh, is an anxiety reliever if we teach it well. Uh, the same thing's true about mindfulness, right? When we teach the techniques involved in living a mindful life, um, it takes people out of the anxiety of the future or the past and allows them the freedom of the present. Um, in the present moment, um, I, I, am, I am allowed to escape from the, uh, the worries of, of all the things that I have to do in the, in the future. Um, and if we can help kids learn to give themselves permission to experience that, and give them some techniques. I mean, something as simple as uh, correct breathing. I literally had this like device that I wore for a while. It's called Spire that uh, you wear on your waist, and it um, it'll send you a notification to your phone if it if it senses that you're not breathing deeply or consistently enough. Oh, and, like, that's in cool. Many, yeah, and in many ways, like that's where we're at in the world right now. We're so fast paced. We're so busy. We have so much to do that we like. It's to the point where we need reminders to breathe. How silly is that? Uh, but also incredibly um, a, a powerful reminder that we do need reminders for this stuff. And um, I think emotional regulation, one of the simplest ways to exercise emotional regulation is to breathe. Right? When you're feeling angry, when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling resentment, when you're feeling sad, taking that deep, steadying breath, focusing on the present moment, uh, separating what you're experiencing from um, from the how you're describing what you're experiencing. Um all of those techniques can allow you to reduce anxiety, which, you know, is the first step in, in increasing empathy. Right. So actually breathing with intention, it's something that happens automatically, right? So to make it purposeful and take it out of that automaticity or whatever the word is, take, take it and make it intentional because it's going to happen automatically whether you make it intentional or not. Yep. yep. Yeah. So you're giving it purpose. Yeah. Which, wow. yeah, back, back to purpose. <laughs> Good stuff. I think you just brought us full circle. That is amazing. Um, we're going to need to wrap up here in a little bit. I, I want to know what's next for you, and I want to know where the listeners can find you to follow you or glean more from your work. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, in my work in, in schools over the past many years, I've, I've loved the storytelling and I've loved you know, creating assemblies and doing professional development with, with staff. Um, really, a lot of my focus at this point is is finding ways to connect people to the work that we're doing with Character Strong. Um, and I just believe in it deeply because I've seen it work over and over again in schools where you get a 
couple of, of champions, a couple of advocates of this work. Uh, we train them on the model that that we've um, gathered between myself in over 600 schools and John's 20 plus years in education. And we both work at a um, an incredible leadership camp in Washington. And John himself is a speaker and has worked with hundreds of schools. So we have all this data um, from in the trenches experience and, and from across the country in lots of different schools, seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, and so we've come up with some really simple models on how to help educators and schools create a culture of character, a culture where there's consistent practice of this, this work and these conversations are purposeful and intentional. And that's really our whole model is how do we help schools and teachers become intentional and effective at leadership, character, and, and culture development. Um, so what's next for me is is continuing to figure out how to do that better. We're in less than two years. We're in over 300 schools, which is pretty amazing. Um, Phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so we have an advisory program that goes 6th through 12th grade, vertically aligned, 100 lessons at the middle school level, 100 lessons at the high school level. And you know that intimately because you're helping be a part of that magic. Um, we have a leadership curriculum. It's a semester-long curriculum, 90, 60-minute lessons. Um, and we're working on a bunch of other projects. We're working on uh, what's coming next is an elementary character component, which we're really excited about. Um, we're continuing to ramp up our professional development because we know that staff buy-in is everything. And if we can get the staff on board and speaking the same language, it changes the entire game of how this work happens in schools. And we're continuing to, to build out uh, full one and two day trainings, which have been incredible. Um, where teachers come to us and they bring teams and they go back to their schools equipped to to make a real difference uh, in in not just the the test scores and the data, but in you know in helping kids become good human beings. Um, where whereas we know before maybe the old paradigm is like that's the parents' job, or uh, the reality is the average family spends 30 minutes a day connecting and. And we have the privilege of having kids at our schools for five, six, seven, eight hours a day. So um, I really believe that uh, this is where the work happens. Education is how we change the world. And so we have to educate people on how to be more kind. And I think it's so appropriate that I'm hearing airplanes in the background only because it's amazing <laughs> how your work is taking off. I am just... I'm so delighted to be a part of it. I'm, um, you know, eager to, to come up to Washington and, and watch you um, train and work and grow alongside some middle schoolers next month. And really, really thankful today to, to listen to a little bit of the backstory and let my listeners get to know you a little bit today. So, so thank you, Houston, for, for joining us. Of course. Let me give you the last two just so you have them and I'll give oh, you yes, a shorthand yes, yes. version. The, the last two in my brain, number one is inconsistency. I think consistency changes everything. If we can be consistent over time, it builds trust. And I think uh, that's one of the areas where I see schools struggle with this work is you can't just have a kindness week or an assembly or toss in a program. This is daily work and we need to figure out tools and strategies to hold each other accountable to make sure this conversation, even if it's just 30 seconds, two minutes a day, um, we need to be talking about it every day. So no um, more one and done. No more one and dones. Okay, and the, got it. The, the last one comes from a middle school student who saw me present those four 
And he came up to me afterwards. He goes, Houston, I agree with all of them. He goes, but the last one I think is important. I said, what do you mean? He goes, when people think they're more important than other people, then they have a hard time being kind. If I think what I'm doing is more important than what you're doing, then I'm not going to stop for you. Um, So just a reminder that uh, we're all on the same playing field. One of my favorite quotes, at the end of the game, the king and the, the pawn go back to the same box. Wow, think about that for a while. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to sign off. This podcast is supported by ProSign Design, a family-owned business dedicated to character, safety, and organization. I want to thank you so much, Houston, for joining us and invite the listeners to join us next week as we continue the conversation about character education, connections, and life. Until then, remember that character speaks. Thanks again, Houston. Thanks, Barbara. Take care.